0: Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org.
1: I'm Michelle Hakewood, and this is On Air. A podcast focusing on conversations with artists and creatives from Centrum's residency community. I am broadcasting to you from the lands and waters of the Coast Salish people in a place known as Katai to the Sklalom people and today known as Port Towns in Washington. This podcast is focused on bringing artists together in community to explore the ways that place, process, and the personal intersect. We dive into the many ways that artists are responding to the current times, affecting change, and finding sustenance during health, climate, and social crisis. Join us and take an hour to be in residence and unpack your own relationships to creativity, time, and place. Thank you for being here and enjoy this episode. I have just returned from a wonderful walk down to the shoreline here at Fort Warden and I had taken this walk because I was editing the podcast episode you're about to listen to which is a conversation between Cleo Wolfley Erskine and July Hazard and Milesia Estrella and Andy Jones and This conversation is a continuation of the project that Cleo, Wolfley Erskine, and July Hazard have embarked on as part of their Northwest Heritage residency at Centrum, which has encompassed uh, the years between 2019 and the present, and this is one of four episodes that Explores their questions around what queer ecologies is and is grounded in. In this conversation, they are sitting at a beach uh, in East Oakland, or a shoreline, I should say, and they are having a conversation about many meandering but all completely related and intertwined subjects revolving around the various, uh, poetic dance and climate science and, uh, ecology focuses that they all sort of move in and out of and, and each individually kind of share the ways that their interests in, uh, collaborating and, um, entering into relation with the shoreline and beyond human entities, the way that that impacts their various artistic and scholarly and scientific projects. You are, I'm sure, going to get as much out of this as I did. And I hope that you'll also maybe even take a walk to the nearest shore or body of water or just place where you can get some fresh air and really drink in everything that these four people are sharing. Enjoy.
2: Could we ask you to, uh, to int- introduce yourselves, uh, anything you'd like to say about yourselves, but also the work that you do separately and together?
3: Yeah, so I'm Andy Jones. I am a scientist, artist, queer person, uh, and husband to this guy. Um, I kind of professionally, my day job is that I um, study human and environmental systems and their interactions very much in the context of climate change, Uh, work a lot on Uh, how we can use scientific information to inform decision-making and planning as we are now faced with adapting all of our various infrastructure and life support systems to a changing environment. Um, Over the last several years, it's felt very important and rich to me to engage with uh, artistic partners in various projects. I think, as I was saying before, I'm just of the view that our whole human selves are very rich and complex and that it's uh, it's not enough to understand the world through a scientific lens. I think there's something, you know, it's very powerful. uh, And the discipline of it to be clear about biases and grounded in observation is extremely powerful and yet we make decisions we understand the world through narrative and sensation and relationship to other humans and non-human things so um it's felt important to me kind of for my own practice and in terms of what i'm offering to the world to engage in this broader way and so i've been collaborating with fog beast uh which Militia will talk about, and uh, the Climate Music Project. And then I've also um, helped to organize a couple of residencies at Headlands Center for the Arts, where we've brought scientists and artists and community activists and environmental justice and equity experts together for a series of uh, residencies where we'll stay for four or five days at the art Center and have conversations, learn about each other's practices, and... Um, seed ideas for collaboration but they've been very much not about sort of getting to a product but more about uh building relationships and uh, and, and understanding so
4: that's that's me my name is Estrella. Um, I think it's worth sharing that we live on unceded Chechenyo Ohlone land in otherwise known as East Oakland um like Andy said we're married <laughs> um and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I'm a dance artist. I'm a mover, first and foremost. I love movement. I've always been fascinated by movement. Um, I am currently artistic director of two companies. One of them is called Fog Beast, and we use dance theater... Tactics and playfulness to get really serious about things. Um, And uh, so we're singers, we're dancers, actors, um, designers, and um, each process with Fog Beast is kind of like a, it's just discovering itself along the way. So there's this sort of freedom of form and also use of very traditional form. Um, And then the other company that I direct is called Bandaloop, and that's actually a 30-year-old vertical dance company based in Oakland. We combine rock climbing technology and contemporary dance to make the sides of buildings, bridges, cliffs our dance floor. Um, And relevant to this conversation You know, most of my work with Bandeloup unfolds outside. So we're always dealing with the elements and the weather, different surfaces, whether they be natural rock surfaces or um, built buildings.
5: That kind of brings us to one of our questions, which is, yeah, kind of staying grounded in this place right here. What are some of the histories of this place that... We might want to bring into this interview right now. Um, It could be specifically this park or just more broadly, you know, this part of the bay, Um, whether that be settler histories, immigrant histories, native histories, industrial histories,
4: Hmm.
5: as a way of, you know, acknowledging where we are.
3: yeah well all of those th- all the things <laughs> I mean this is such a complex landscape that's shaped by the natural forces of the water and the movement of silt underneath the water these all these kind of invisible forces uh, and then also you know all these strands of history clearly affected by the kind of industrial presence um, but also um, you know, native use of the 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 resources here.
2: We're on a um, narrow spit of land, um, surrounded by riprap walls. I don't know where this rubble came from. I don't know whether it's part of the earthquake rubble that makes up the Albany landfill and the San Francisco landfill, uh, or whether it's just uh, broken dock pieces.
5: I know that that spit out there was the. Um, when they were building the BART tunnel under the bay, that's all the spoil from that. And that was already, Mm. was that 68 or something when they were doing the BART Mm. tunnel? And at that point, there were already, or maybe even a little later, maybe it was a little later, there were already laws kind of preventing people from dumping into the bay, but they negotiated this thing because it was the BART and it was this public benefit to Mm. fill in even more of the bay there. We're
2: surrounded by shipping cranes and shipping containers. We're sitting beside a barbed wire enclosure for a weather station. There are fennel, fennel, wild fennel growing and cormorants and egrets and some little snipey kind of bird maybe, um, sunning themselves on, on rubble islands.
3: Yeah, and a a body is actually resting on a big chunk of concrete with pieces of rebar sticking out of it, an old um, rusty pipe. I imagine this is demolition debris, perhaps from an earthquake. (laughs) Some big building or piece of highway infrastructure, not sure.
2: Paint pen graffiti (laughs) all all over the exposed pipe. shells a lot of shells in the,
5: mm-hmm. in the asphalt mix yeah the shells remind me there's this place on the duwamish river where we've been spending a lot of time in seattle that kind of evokes this place a little bit too oh there's a seal a harbor seal um yeah that's the only part of the duwamish that has that wasn't completely paved over and it's actually a shell mound so all the shells you see are thousands of years old and mm. this yeah a village site right there.
4: Part of my family history here in the Bay um, kind of led us in our last project to think of, to start thinking or keep thinking about the shoreline at this kind of place of embarkation or um, disembarking. For my family, uh, my mother arrived on a 30-day boat trip from the Philippines in 1948. Uh, It was a military vessel. And then her father, my grandfather, my namesake, was actually appointed to be a commanding officer where what is now at the Marin Headlands. So there's three bases there, Fort Cronkite, Fort Berry and Fort Baker. And so the first place that my mother lived when she came over from the Philippines was Right there at Fort Berry, which is now the Headland Center for the Arts, which we had our shoreline residency at, and we didn't know at the time we were kind of, you know, applying or negotiating our residency. I was telling my mom about it, and she was like, Oh, that was actually where we first lived. It's like, whoa, wow. So there was a yeah, this thought about shorelines being this kind of the membrane of Im- immigration for my family, um, this particular shoreline, um, and also thinking about you know then my my family continued to kind of grow in San Francisco and around the Bay, and that you know these shorelines have just been kind of where we are. You know we haven't really thought about it because it's kind of just where we are, um, and you know, yeah. It's very different than, I think, maybe for Andy, who grew up in the Midwest and, you know, it's a relative newcomer to the coastal life.
3: (laughs) Yeah, for me, approaching the shoreline through this investigation that we've been doing through the headlands and this other work that we've been doing, um, this idea of a threshold of a boundary, it's a boundary between the land and the water, um, but it's also, you know, forms political and social boundaries... Um, and that it's something that's changing constantly, you know, on timescales of seconds to minutes to centuries and millennia. Uh, And we talked about some of the threads of, you know, forces of change, both kind of historical human influences and also the kind of geographic influences. So that's something that's really um, captured my curiosity uh, and how we can, you know, use both artistic and scientific practice to understand those forces and those timescales of change uh, and be able to see see the evolution see the invisible forces and I think that's something that's just so powerful about we talked a little bit about using you know using this stick to measure what one meter of sea level rise looks like and it gives you this very tangible way to see into the future um, what is this landscape going to be a hundred years from now or, um, so.
5: I remember taking a canoe out. Um, so I used to live just on a, at a boatyard just about a mile down this uh, Do you know Nigeria the Fifth Ave right marina over there? Where the Phoenix Ironworks is. Um. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a, it's about six years. Yeah, we had a
5: canoe that we would just take out a lot. And um, I remember going out with Danielle from our program, Danielle Speller. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, just... When you're down on the water and you look around and you say, okay, well, all the fill in this area was a meter. And then, you know, we're, she's looking at people building brand new stuff right on top of that fill and just saying, wow, well, aren't they looking into the future even 50 years? Right. This is all going to be at least seasonally or at high tide
2: in the mm-hmm. spring underwater. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about shorelines and some of my recent work as uh, in, in, that sort of, in that sort of membrane of exchange way that, that you are talking about, and there's the, the embarkation and disembarkation or debarkation of humans, and there's also um, so many arrivals of, of non-humans, arrivals and approaches of non-humans. Thinking about it as a a place of exchange of kind of informational and material exchange um, through predation, through contact, through observation, um, and a kind of a place that's kind of sensitive, kind of um, receptive and, and raw, and is you know kept that way by the by the contact between the, the water element and the the land elements uh, where the in a place that's sort of collaborative in itself um, like the the noises that you hear are a combination of water voice and air voice and land voice uh, together and you can't say that it's any one of those things making that noise, it's a noise of rocks with water in the
4: wind you know That's beautiful. I I've been spending some time with Ann Hamilton's work because I am studying textiles right now, and I love Ann's work. I there's a tower that Ann made up on the Oliver Ranch up in Sonoma County that I was privileged to dance in a couple times. Um, But Ann talks a lot about touch, right, and 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 contact. And cloth being the first hand that touches us, or not the first, but you know the hand that touches us all. Yeah. But I think about that what you're talking about that this. Um, and a lot of my you know my dance studies, my dance journey, fascination, obsession started with contact improvisation. Actually, it was one of the first forms that I. Um, that I studied so uh, all of that is about how how we touch and how we listen and and relationship you know and and what information is in that touch and how we play with that um yeah that's just what this makes me think of is, uh, the shore as a, as a a place of multiple things touching
2: <laughs> I imagine that 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 contact improvisation idea must expand beyond the the one performer touching the other performer to other other kinds of beyond human contact. Is that
4: absolutely? Yeah. Can you you talk about that? So I
2: feel like I hear it underneath what you're saying, but
4: yeah. I don't know if I'm answering your question right, but I mean, right now, as we sit here, you know, the sun is touching our skin and the wind is touching our skin. You know, the sound waves from my voice are tickling little hairs in your ear, if you're hearing, if you're a hearing person, right? So, um, so much of it is about like what's touching us, all the way from our embryonic stages in the womb to, you know, right now sitting on the shore on concrete, um and yeah, so it, it yeah, the, the kind of sensuality of our humanness comes into play, and how yeah, I like to have
2: conversations like this outside just because of that um, that, that feeling that something unexpected can come into it, can like enter it that's that's more than what any of us brings, you know. Um, <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that as improvisation until when you were speaking just now and yeah. so I'm mm-hmm. running with that but I don't know
3: what it goes yeah well well, that idea of um, kind of the ambiguity about who's in control you know uh, in contact of improvisation as a dance practice or as we were saying the various forces that intersect at a shoreline and it's something that I think about in the context of you know being a a climate scientist and wanting to understand and be able to communicate and help people relate to the concept of climate change. I I think that comes up there as well. And this we're simultaneously vulnerable to the vagaries of the natural world, you know, where our systems are, we have fires, we have floods, we have earthquakes. Um, and so we're, you know, in in that sense, we're these small things that are being influenced and impacted and uh, by by larger forces. And then at the same time, we have this agency and we have this uh, force as seven billion people on the planet burning carbon that was put in the earth millions of years ago and putting it back into the atmosphere that is actually changing the dynamics of those forces. And so we're, it's again this interplay of both sort of a agency and you might say responsibility and at the same time this kind of this vulnerability Um, and that kind of complex interplay I guess can be seen in the metaphor of the shoreline I I suppose with the uh, the timescales and forces that interact
5: Yeah I think a lot about those Contacts and specifically about, um, in terms of queer ecology, in terms of, you know, when people are along the shoreline, usually I think about it as a river, but we just saw this happen with the seal right here at the, at the bay. Um, but yeah, what, what happens in that moment of encounter and what are the, the feelings or sensations or emotions that, you know, that we have when we see... Um, for my work it's often really small fish in places that people don't expect right in these urban streams or in these kind of degraded agricultural streams where there's tons of salmon right under the surface and, and then you know I think scientists and non-scientists have this feeling usually of wow that's exciting whoa they're alive whoa look at they're so interesting they're you know gorgeous little silver <laughs> shimmers you know and And then I think as scientists, uh, at least as the way I was trained in ecology, you have to kind of interrupt that feeling in order to extract data about this and not be too biased about how you're measuring and counting. And yeah, I feel that, that feeling of, yeah, excitement and sensuousness of field work. For me, it's a lot of times being in the water and actually swimming under the water, feeling the water on my skin and seeing fish right in front of my eyes, you know, and that, could be the source for um yeah like queer rage at these fish dying right and that could then be channeled into other or you know queer delight at them still living that could also be perhaps like you know inspire a different a different kind of action um so that's one thing i think about and the this kind of sensuousness that Mm -hmm. um has been part of like my own experience as a queer person to really embrace that and channel it into as like a force for public connection. And I was interested in the way, you know, you talked a little bit about the Headlands project, but I was really interested in just a little blurb that I saw about it, that was very participatory and also involving like food and eating together. And these kind of, you know, Collective experience, but also very embodied experience, right? Of of consuming and 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 you know, um, yeah, being together at the table. So, um, I wondered if you guys wanted to talk, yeah, any more directly about that project and kind of what you what you envisioned and what it did in the dress rehearsal and what you hope it'll do in the future. Sure. You want to talk about?
4: Anything?
3: Well, I think in you know in one thread just. Building on this, what you were talking about—the wonder or the, you know, the embodied experiences of the shoreline of, you know, our relationship to the environment—I guess that's what we call it. <laughs> um, that you know, we're ho- complex beings, right? Our humanness is—we have these very logical minds, and we have the ability to observe and experiment and think scientifically but we also are intuitive and we're communal and uh, we're sensual and we're imaginative Uh, we have goals we have plans, we have ideas so we really wanted to bring that whole human to this investigation of the shoreline and then invite audiences into the material that came out of that whole human investigation um and so it had these elements of communalness, um, had elements of, you know, drawing landscape architecture, detailed drawings with, like, the, um, you know, the elevational gradient and which plant species are located in different places. Uh, we charted, you know, I spent one night where I stayed up late actually charting the cycles of the sun and moon, like their angles in the sky on a big piece of paper on the floor, and had this epiphany about how the <laughs> how the moon and sun alignment aligns with the high and low tides. And uh, you know, I've always known obviously that the tides are controlled by the sun and the moon, but to actually like plot the data on paper and experience it in that way through that part of my mind uh, and body.
4: Um, we were working with this um, our friend, dear friend, and uh, coastal geologist. His name is Dave Reed, and you know, he beautifully recognized that the tides are a kind of a celestial respiration you know which sounds like whoa california woo woo but it's also like oh yeah there's actually like planetary bodies like being pulled by other planetary bodies (laughs) and reflected in the tide which is so beautiful and connective in a huge way
2: and there is respiration in that too right like there's like gas exchanges affected by the way the mud is covered Mm -hmm. up or not covered up Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 the plants are like
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the headlands, there's this beautiful lagoon that, you know, so there's a freshwater creek that feeds into this huge lagoon, and then it's interfaced with the ocean through a sandbar. And we learned about, we were, you know, observing it. One of the first days that we were there, we actually saw water, big waves kind of breaking over the sand into the lagoon. But most of the time that it was there, it was visually disconnected from the ocean. But we learned about how in the winter time, the freshwater can build up to a point that The lagoon sort of swells to a point where there's so much water in it that it will break through the sand and spit all the fresh water out and just so the organicness of that you know respiration in a sense uh was really fascinating to me um and then also thinking about it in the context of sea level rise and the dynamic movement of you know where that sandbar is going to be and um yeah.
5: Yeah, the salmon wait <laughs> offshore for that sandbar to breach, and then they come in. Oh, and,
3: um, cool. wow.
5: Cool.
4: <laughs> yeah, and the food thing, I think that, um, you know, with Fog Beast, my co-director, co-founder, Andrew Ward, who had a beauty, he's an incredible movement artist and now has moved into landscape architecture, Um Still, and we still make dance work and are integrating those things. so it was a really great timing actually for this residency to be working on the land and to have his practice of observation um, from landscape architecture kind of move into the process um, but we 've always through the life of fog beast in our in, in whatever thematic research we 've been doing um, have had dinners with people like Andy. Uh, people we find that are, you know, immersed in the space that we're interested in. Um, so during our residency, we actually we were there during AGU, which is the American Geophysical Union uh, conference, huge conference um, in San Francisco. And Andy actually brought five or six scientists. From AGU one night over, and we had a big dinner and met over food and discussed and sh- shared our work with e- with them. And uh, so there's been a number of times in our research over the years that we've had these dinners, which just creates this like kind of comfort and conversation and familiarity, and also the nourishment and with climate change and food. Also, there's that whole you know the food space. Um, that we can consider in the in the material we're working with. Um, so that was really beautiful, and, and so we thought how appropriate to have a meal as part of the event. And the headlands themselves have this gorgeous kitchen, which actually, coincidentally, was um, was uh, designed by Anne Hamilton. Um, it's beautiful. The hearth there is is incredible, and. Um, so they were really willing, their, their kitchen team and the program director there, to, to go the extra mile um, and provide a beautiful um, meal after the show. The, the show, the experience, uh, brought the audience into the, the art center, which is uh, a repurposed military building, historic building, where my grandfather was colonel, um, commanding officer. So that, that also was like a huge part of that piece for me personally was imagining my mom as a five-year-old where we now we're bringing our five-year-old there running around and playing, just imagining like, Whoa, this is my mom, um, 70 years ago, um, here at this place. So there's just this really profound kind of familial placemaking process that I was going through personally there in this piece. Um, and so that fed in, we were, we had, this is where like, the, the lament for me around being COVID canceled the night before opening was that my family, which is a huge, sprawling Filipino Catholic family, um, was all coming. And actually four of my aunties who lived on the land were, um, willing to, play mahjong which is something that they've done this kind of uh this game this tradition that they you know that they've done their whole lives together they would stay up all night playing mahjong these five sisters uh four of them are still surviving and the four of them were in installation in the piece in the building you know where they Mm. of the first place they lived in america in 1948 now all in their 70s and 80s, um, and that I got them to agree to do it, and like set up the mahjong room, and and had all my cousins ready to come to my show, which was like, you know, they don't they're not familiar with the kind of work I do, and so it was, in some ways, like coming out and sharing into a wider audience, um, and so that. I think maybe it was the biggest heartbreak for me, around being COVID canceled. Is is that um, integration? I mean, that's that's really personal, but but that's what it was. Yeah,
5: that's an amazing story of that family connection. That yeah, you didn't directly know about it until yeah,
4: yeah,
3: that yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting you asked before about how the investigation on the shoreline translates back into being in a studio and then presenting work to an audience. And that is something that in this particular show that got COVID canceled, there was a lot of these these elements were brought in there because it was a meal and it was, uh, you know, an informal kind of walk through the space. And there was, you know, also planned to be a hike down to the beach and then performances on the beach with the high school students and, um, you know, and then come back for the meal. So it was this whole, you know, thing, uh, experiential afternoon. Um, And it was, you know, interesting to me as, I guess, sort of the official, you know, scientist on the project to think about how, you know, all this investigation and thinking that we did about the history and the processes and the, you know uh like how does that actually show up in the work and um you know in some ways it it can be very abstract right so like in the quality of the movement you know like a wave-like movement uh but it was important to me to see that kind of come in more explicitly less abstractly and so we created this character um you know there's some kind of acting, theatrical portions of the performance, and one of the characters was this kind of, um, you know, uh, like kind of hotshot shoreline adaptation expert uh, who was brought into a, like some sort of you know community meeting about like what are we going to do about uh, the sea level rise and all the flooding that's starting to happen over at the park and ride, and uh, you know just really get very um, narrative and explicit about. This kind of set of issues that we were engaging with, to to bring that into the room, and I guess also ground people in the place and in the context of this moment in history that we're all uh, living in, in relation to the shoreline. So that that felt important to me, and I thought it was really nicely, really nicely woven in, um, which I think is, speaks to the mastery of Fog Beast because they you know blend music and songwriting and theater and dance, um, and social practice. So, uh, having that multidisciplinary artistic approach allowed us to bring all these different ideas and themes that we were engaging with in different ways.
4: Yeah. And on the other side of that coin, like I'm, t- maybe I'm challenging myself to just be okay with not knowing how, what the work does, you know, and, um, that, that I was talking to my friends, wonderful, amazing permaculture, social permaculture, and uh, person Pandora Thomas. I don't know if you know Pandora; definitely worth knowing, Pandora. Yeah, um, and they were saying, you know, if we're going to be talking about the coast, about the shoreline, about sea level rise, let's let the coast have a voice in that conversation. And I think, to me, right now, that as I think of it, that means us being here hearing exactly what July was talking about, these sounds and feeling, smelling the salt air and feeling the the wind and the fog or whatever it is, um, that the sensual presence on the shore is as much a part of the work as is these very explicit narrative stories around what's happening to these shorelines right now.
2: invite you to reflect on this this idea of queer ecologies or ecology or ecologies uh, queers doing it, uh as Cleo was saying those, people don't really agree about what those words mean, if they mean anything at all, ecologists might, um, think they don't have anything to do with ecology and queers might think that, uh, I don't know what queers might think, um but anyway, um just ask you if those terms are ones that you use to describe your work if they if queer ecology resonates with with you as as your pursuit or if those are
3: more two separate words for you mm. well, I'll say I haven't thought a lot about. The intersection of those two terms, but as I'm thinking about it in this moment, what comes to me is that a a big part of my experience as a queer person is the experience of being socially other. And in my life, that's actually translated into an inventiveness and an imaginativeness around creating culture. Uh, You know, sort of, you know, well, there are no set social expectations for how our relationship is supposed to work, and that means we get to create it, and that that actually feels liberating to me, and, um, you know, uh, a little more than 10 years ago, we decided to get married in this time when it was not legal to do so, and, you know, there was sort of messages from... All sides of our, you know, all directions in our life saying that that's not good, good idea, you know, that maybe that's buying into some, you know, hegemonic tradition, or maybe that's, you know, something that's just not supposed to be for you. And so it was really this practice of, well, what are we, what is meaningful about that uh, social tradition? What is meaningful about to us about the concept of families and communities coming together and uh, about commitment so that experience of kind of inventiveness and imaginativeness is really a big part of my experience of of queerness and so it makes me think about you know in relation to uh, sense making through art or science or whatever it is that we're using to make sense of the world um, perhaps that means that at least for me that there's this kind of like imaginativeness that's that's um, woven into my relationship and that you know it's um, which I think is so important for us you know thinking about the shoreline or any kind of human environment complex relationship that there's all you know we've spoken about the complexities and the different forces but you know another piece of it is also kind of our choices and our ability to dream up new relationships and um, so, that's one way that queerness shows up for me.
4: <laughs> I am, I'm like, not an academic. Um, so, but I do have a lot of thoughts um, and try to articulate things in the best way I can. Um, when I think about ecology, I think about, like, a, a web of relationships, and relationality and what that means um what it means to be in relation uh to be affected or to affect to be present with something or not present and still in relationship um and there's something about my queer community where uh or the queer community that i am a part of that uh there's this I guess this natural or maybe it's forced or cultivated way of not assuming I know about you, um, of of knowing that you could be radically different than my biases might make you up to be. Um, and I feel like as as queer people, maybe we have this sort of, um, a little more freedom around, I guess identity or identifying um, that now as I speak about it actually really is a kind of part of my work that I don't think about because it's just always been there as an artist. Um, You know, I was relentlessly teased by my older brothers because I couldn't help but dance every day in the living room. And tumble on the grass, you know, and um, and that teasing never stopped me, you know. <laughs> There's kind of like a, oh well, this is what I do, kind of thing. Um, so I don't know if that answers at all your question, but uh.
5: I love that. I, I love. I think for me, what's so exciting about this project is just to think about. Um, yeah because queer ecology hasn't been defined really by anyone it is this open space of um, you know and I'm really interested in this going in this direction from yeah the practices that we make in our queer communities and the ways of interaction that we make and thinking about that as you know a potential for, yeah, for ecological science on the one hand, but also just for ecology that is the relation, right? And for, yeah, living differently in the world in relation to thinking differently about, you know, humans and other other species and the water itself. So, yeah, I love that. That image of you as a child, too. Our, our child um, is three and <laughs> yeah. he... It's that way, but with drumming, he just can't wow. stop himself from drumming, you know, <laughs> three or four hours a day on everything. The minimum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he was here, he'd say, oh, that's a good tapping stick. <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of uncontainable, mm-hmm. um, yeah, sense of what it is that, that you just do, right? And I, I feel like that's the thing that I think about a lot with other animals um, like with salmon like they just are gonna swim upstream and that's that's what they do and we as humans can enable or hinder that but they're still gonna do that that thing right? mm-hmm. or, you know beavers building dams or whatever yeah
4: i'm so curious about your work like the little glimpses that you've talked about
5: Oh, yeah, we can talk about it more. You can yeah. ask us questions,
4: too. <laughs> I think what's up for me, you know, having worked not that long in the climate space, you know, since 2015, we really started focusing on it with Fog Beast. And, and also, I mean, we live together, and I live with a climate scientist, so there's always that. But, um, you know, this year, with the pandemic, with the fires here in California and all over the West Coast, of course not being able to breathe, all the focus on the lungs, the hurricanes in the south, I mean it's just blatant with in, in the climate space the racial justice uprisings, you know the intersection of racial justice and environmental justice, it's all like in the face right now and I feel having worked in the art climate space and been feeling around in a feeling feeling state with this work that there's so much lament right now, right? Grief. And I think the pace of life and even the pace of life that I inhabit keeps me from feeling that grief but it's like an essential part of maybe what will galvanize more action that's needed so I'm curious where that is in your work grief is big for you do you, do you want to talk about that yeah I mean there's a chapter
5: um, in the book that I'm finishing which is called Underflows uh, Transfiguring Rivers Queer and Ecology and so there's a chapter that's about it started where I was at the um, Ecological Society of America conference watching an ecologist talk about migratory birds and she had these um, beautiful figures showing there's a species of i think it was a yellow warbler that has um you know they spend the winters in central america and then fly up into the midwest and she was showing population dynamics and then you know her data was essentially showing that no matter what because of human deforestation in the in Central America and agricultural chemicals in the Midwest that the species was going to go extinct and she had she said this in this very kind of measured scientific way and yet like watching her affect and her body just the feeling in her body to me evoked this feeling of this grief that you couldn't express. You could you had to tamp down and and contain and and I just, you know, it's in this windowless stuffy conference room with, you know, tons of scientists and everyone's asking her questions about her data and and, you know, I just had this feeling of like, wow, these people were all Little kids who had to go poke around in the vacant lot and uncontainably, right, look at birds and 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 yet, like the way that we're trained as scientists, like if we express these feelings like in public, it takes away from our legitimacy as scientists in some way. And and at the same time, I was doing you know field work on Salmon Creek, which is just a Near, um near Bodega, um, and uh, I often went into the field alone, but often with, but sometimes with other people, and just started to notice when people in the field would have these, like, expressions of love, or grief, or, or, whatever, or species, and just their, their, you know, not only the species we were studying, but all the species, and just, it's like, wow, what if we could bring this into in, out into the public and be like you know like be out about our love for these other species right and not have to kind of hide this wind then that to me I was like oh that does maybe that is kind of like you know queers who have to be closeted or trans people who can't you know be out about their own gender and and so that to me was like oh maybe maybe this is a, a type of theorizing, in, you know, from kind of queer theory into ecology um, that, you know, and yeah, like I I was like, you know, a young child in the 80s during ACT UP and, and AIDS, but I do remember, like, yeah, just being like, wow, these people are having this mass funeral on the steps of the White House, and this is powerful, right? And what, like, maybe this is what we needed you as ecologists to really change the conversation around climate change or extinction. So, so that's kind of one way, um, that I think about it. And then the art project that came out of that was this, um, convention booth called Tell Us In Your Troubles that July and I did. Um, the first time was at the Bay Delta Science Conference, which is um, happens in Sacramento. It's kind of practitioners working on the river delta system. Um, and we had this prop left over from the... Do you want to talk about it?
2: Well, so you, you remember, if you wore the show you remember the salmon head that, the, that, that, that she wore, that the salmon character wore. So, big or that paper paper I wore as a salmon character silver? at that play. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> this was also the, the, the head, the outfit for... Um, For the salmon confessional booth, and as the, I think I took the first shift of salmon. And as as the salmon, you know, I had on this three foot, three footer longer silver spray painted head, and um, had to keep my face down and only interact with the people who came up with this with this head, and was trying to have a little bit of a fishy motion. Uh, And around me were were rocks because the salmon, you know, salmon's not going to talk to you. But they, they flip over rocks a lot, right? Like, they move their tails around, they flip the rocks over to make the place for their eggs, and so I could flip over rocks. And on the bottom of the rocks were, were questions that we, that we had. Uh, some iterations we wrote on them with markers, other iterations we, like, taped on typed questions. Which ones do you remember?
5: Well, one of them um, was, describe a place you love that no longer exists.
2: Right, so I might turn that rock over for someone who came up and who kept trying to approach the salmon, you know, verbally and I might turn this, this over and they might or might not notice that I had turned it over. Sooner or later, they would and they'd say, am I supposed to answer the question? <laughs> so there was all this great awkwardness around around that, that you know, interspecies barrier, <laughs> <It was> performative <laughs> interspecies barrier. Uh, and eventually they would start talking, We would turn over um, more and more, like, uh, is the tide changing? Um Uh, Are
5: you troubled by your data?
2: Are you troubled by your data? Do you believe your findings? Uh, There was one that
5: was, uh, do you like to
2: swim? Oh, do you like to swim? Right. Um, Oh,
5: and then there was the great prompt question which was just which river and sometimes it would be a total non sequitur to what the <laughs> yes. person had said but this is what the salmon is
2: interested in right? like, it was, it was like, <laughs> yeah the person might be describing some some huge drama their work life and then you turn over do you like to swim <laughs> uh, and they would keep talking and talking and you know sometimes they would start crying and these scientists at this conference and you know there was cocktail hour but, but they would start becoming very emotional and, and crying sometimes they would bring their uh their kids up and say i want to inf- introduce you to, to my spawn salmon <laughs> you know i'm so proud of them <laughs> things like this um, we also did it at that that art uh what was at oh, the glitter bomb the and glitter bomb and yeah arts, at somarts yeah. so it worked both in um sort of science policy situations and also in queer art situations uh yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Well,
5: and and there was just to finish the story of that installation, there was this part that was really important to me, me and to to both of us. I think about really relating like materially to the salmon. So on the one hand, through like not anthrop—I mean, obviously the salmon was like anthropomorphic, so the person wearing a salmon head, but like, but not making the salmon be symbolic, but trying to have it like convey salmonness in some sense, right? Um, and then also in Uh, A lot of my my thinking work here in the Bay Area is around, like, how disconnected people are from, like, the source of our drinking water or um, the mountains where fires happen, right? I mean, I think this fall we had this really—or I imagine that you all had this very direct experience, as we did in Seattle, of we live in the city, but the forest is not just a place we recreate, but it comes into our lungs when it burns, And so similarly with the rivers, you know, part of the construct of this installation was like, okay, well, we're taking all of your responses back to the salmon and we're going to, you know, play recordings under the water for them. And we're going to take the things that you wrote on little strips of paper, tinfoil, and like drag them in the water behind a canoe. And this question of like, how can we yeah, how can we communicate across the species barrier back to salmon? Do they care? So then we went out with our canoe to the Cosumnes Preserve, which is a beautiful flooded Delta Island um, outside of Sacramento and, yeah, paddled around and played the recordings and at one point a salmon jumped in front of the canoe and, you know, who's to say, right, like how the (laughs) other species responds or what that means, But, but that was a part of it too and, like, helping, you know, to just say, yeah, well, we are, I think as you were saying earlier, Andy, we're having all these effects on the planet and on specific places through our um, engineering and our just our lives, right? And so how can we... What does it mean to try to communicate directly instead of just, just in this indirect mm-hmm.
2: way? But then we also recorded that delivery happening, that customer delivery happening, and we then played that on a screen as backdrop to the next time we did yeah. the salmon, so yeah. that it kept trying to bring a little bit of stuff back and forth yeah
5: yeah, yeah. yeah so that's that's one what like interacting with grief and <laughs> many
3: yeah other that's that's amazing i mean i love that kind of humanizing or enabling the science and practitioner community to kind of experience their humanness and it's you know making me think about how you know as scientists we're you know we're asked to participate in this performance of objectivity where you know and and I I'm of mixed minds about it I think there's something very valuable about being able to separate biases and just talk about this is what we know to be true and what we know to be not true and what our uncertainties are you know and if I you know were testifying before congress I would you know I would perform that role of the objective scientist and be very careful about introducing my own emotions and biases if that's what I was being asked to do, and I think we are often are asked to play that role of, like, just give us the facts, and, yeah, I see the value of that. You know, if you want to... Our house is potentially sinking into the earth, and we want to have an objective opinion about the structural integrity <laughs> of our foundation, not from a contractor who has a say in the... You know, who has money to make off of it. Mm-hmm. So we, you know... So there, there's reasons for having that objective voice, but I think that we... That creates the situation then where us as practitioners of science are n- perhaps not engaging with that full experience as humans and also that we're trying to communicate to the rest of the world only through the data and the numbers and the charts and that is such a more difficult way to communicate than directly through narrative and feeling I mean we we respond so much more to body language and 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 character and story. So it, it just it makes me think again, I guess, about like adding some imaginativeness to this relationship and how do we, you know, collectively have this conversation and this experience through all the different human lenses.
5: Yeah, I love that with the, just the meter stick and you know you could like distribute meter sticks to everyone right okay where are you What's check in
3: yeah
5: you know i often
2: find myself getting getting really uh coming back to the same hang-up that i have about ecology over and over and i've talked to cleo about it a lot uh, but not not that much to anybody else which is uh that that whole that whole eco route, that whole household root, that whole like Wakos root that's in the word and how it seems like if anything is framed that way as being about a household, then it's not about what's outside of the household. Um, that it's about it's something that you don't even know what the outside of it is if all you're going to talk about is that box, that household box that and that I feel so interested in the um, the most interested in the places where the, the walls of the household are a little broken um, or the tree fell through it or where uh, where the you know moss is creeping up it, even if I don't know what the moss would be in this metaphor. Right? There's something. There's something beyond the, the household of, of ecology, and we see it. You know, the places like the the racial justice uprising. This is a, a manifestation of of a of a brokenness, and also of a um, of an intactness. right? And I think that there's something that art can do, and that queerness can theorize or talk about, that has something to do with not needing to have a drawn-off household um, when we talk about relations and relationality mm-hmm. between us and what's outside of us, um, and where we don't we don't even have to be as concerned with the differentiation between ourselves and, out, and what's outside of us as we do with those sort of receptor zones and contact zones. Um, for me the shoreline is is the place where I feel like most at home and most like right on about having this hang up about, about the concept of ecology. I wonder I wonder how that strikes either of you or, or whether you think about things that way.
3: what it brings up for me is this tendency human tendency to differentiate who our in group is and an out group I I don't know and which seems like it's very wrapped up in a lot of our challenges (laughs) and i often think about what are ideas stories cultural traditions that help us to expand our sense of us to be more ex- inclusive and so yeah i just have a curiosity i guess about what helps us to expand that that idea of us or to see the house as the neighborhood or see the house as the planet, uh, instead of just the house that I live
4: in with my people that are like me. Um, and understanding these things, like what you're talking about, I think has become more urgent for us as we're teaching our five-year-old what kind of world he lives in and, and, and also kind of sharing our values of how to be in relation, in right relationship, with humans and non-humans, um, in in a you know in a world where you know in in a culture that might be teaching him otherwise in implicit and explicit ways. So I think that this is a really important conversation about, um, yeah, how to expand our sense of house or appreciate like your you know the disruptions the break the breakage in that to you know see what's outside of that
5: there were kind of two realms of questions when I was looking over them again that I wanted to put out there in case you guys want to touch on them and the first one was just following up on queer ecology as a practice and so yeah I think for both of you I'm interested in Um, in your, you know, individual work as well as in your collaborative work. um, Does it matter kind of whether, is it different to do this work with queer people as opposed to with people who aren't queer? And I mean, I think queer can be as expansive as you want to be in this context, but, you know, does it, does it, because this is a question that I've had, I think we had, some critique from a reviewer on this paper that we had done around um, beavers and transfiguring the Anthropocene through these kind of imaginaries of how beavers build dams and we were asserting that part of our our thought about beavers was from our own trans experience of uh, bodily transformation but also um, yeah like being able to understand and embrace a non-normative idea of gender through a collective of other people who are doing that simultaneously, right? Um, and, and that's when the reviewer said, well, why does it matter whether the person doing the thought is trans or not, or queer or not? Should everyone be able to do this? And part of me is like, yes, everyone should be able to do this. And also to me, I think sometimes it does feel really different like in my lab group if there's another queer chance trans student there or not right? so I just it's something that I don't have any real answer to but it, it it did make me wonder just yeah what do other other people feel about that or other or other aspects of identity as well yeah
4: are you familiar with Joe Good or the work at all or mm-hmm. his he's kind of i've worked with joe's since 2004 i would say he's one of my biggest mentors in performance making he in the world of contemporary dance he's pretty famous for bringing in text and speaking and back in the early 80s when when that was new now it's you know it's not new um and he's also um, gained some fame through uh, making work around the AIDS crisis in San Francisco and kind of performance as kind of a survival mechanism. Uh, you know, creating community and sustaining community around performance making, especially during that time and processing what they were going through um, made it piece called 29 effeminate gestures um which toured all over the world and then was restaged as a masterwork and he gave it to me to perform this solo so it was really interesting to perform this 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 solo around um feminine you know femininity um being someone who definitely dampened my own femininity down you know as a survival technique i think um so that was sort of a gift but also very you know i I restaged we restaged it in 2012 13 and he made it in 1989 so it was a very different you know um different world (laughs) that it was restaged in um different generation um but I guess in, in in a sense I have I guess in that story is is this kind of like feeling not only radically accepted as a queer person in 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 dance but I'll kind of like he, Joe really challenged me to like break open through that fear of being seen that 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 protective, you know, like a really strong protective shell that I developed over, you know, because it's fucking scary to be a young queer, as you know, (laughs) um, as you might know. Um, yeah, I, so in that way, having queer collaborators and having a queer, um, aesthetic to grow in kind of saved me and showed me to myself, like brought me to more of myself um, so that's big and then the other work that I do with with Bandaloop, you know, exists in a in intersection with the climbing world, which is could be really homophobic a- and uh, so that's been also a process to bring queerness now that I'm the artistic director, I'm the second artistic director of this 30 year old company um and uh, and this, the work was very straight. It wasn't very queer. So I kind of had this concurrent life in queer dance theater and also like climbing, climbing dance. <laughs> and now that I'm artistic director, I'm bringing more of my you know queer aesthetic into it, and it feels so great um, to bring on new collaborators and to show a different side of what the work can look like and challenge those kind of heteronormativity of the climbing world and also the modern dance world too
5: yeah. um, thank Thanks. you guys so much this has been
4: yeah. so awesome thank you
0: Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of On Air is Michelle Hagwood, program manager for Artist Residencies. Our cover artwork is by Leon Finley and our music is by Tabor Dark. Centrum's executive director is Robert Berman. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives, and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include Music from the Centrum Archives, Interviews with Teaching Artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020, Centrum Foundation.